Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. All right, if you remember, we are in Advent. This is the third Sunday in Advent. So the first week, we lit the candle that I called the candle of hope. And the second week, we lit the candle of sacrifice. And we're continuing to use these candles because this way I have to preach short before the first candle burns all the way down. This week, we're lighting the candle of forgiveness. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. It's a tiny little book. It's the last letter we have of Paul, at least that we put chronologically. It's not the last one he wrote. So it's near the end of the New Testament. It has no chapters. When you hear Philemon 20, that doesn't mean chapter 20. That means verse 20. There's just 25 verses in the whole book. Let me give you a little background of what's going on. And by little, I mean, unfortunately, it might last longer than the book does because it's a really short book. Philemon is a wealthy landowner, lives outside the city of Colossae. That's the city that the letter of the Col- to the Colossians was written to. We're in about 60 AD. He is a Christian. He has become a Christian under one of the ministries of the Apostle Paul. We don't know when Paul came through or whatever. But he is a Christian. He is one of the leaders of the church in Colossae. As a wealthy landowner, he has a number of slaves who work his property. Now, without getting into a three-hour dissertation, when you think slavery in the Roman Empire... Don't think slavery in America. In America, we have what was called chattel slavery. Slaves are not people. In the Roman Empire, slaves are people. It has nothing to do with race. It's economic in that sense. So we can talk about that another time if you want, but think of it more in terms of like indentured servitude. You're a slave for a period of time. You get paid if you're a slave. You can take, slaves can take their owners to court if they're not being treated well. They were people in the Roman Empire. This kid... Onesimus is one of his slaves. He's late teens, early 20s, and he decides he's tired of being a slave and he takes off. Sources are confused about exactly what happens, but it looks like he stole some money or some property, which makes sense. If you're trying to run away, you need some, uh, some seed capital. So he steals something, probably takes off. If you're going to run, you've done something wrong, you either go where there's nobody or you go where there's everybody. So you can get lost in the crowd. He chooses the second. He goes to the biggest city in the known world, the only city that has millions of people in it, Rome. He goes to the capital of the empire, Rome, the teeming masses. You can get lost in Rome. Well, in around 60 AD, there's another guy in Rome whose name is Paul the Apostle. It's the end of the book of Acts, if you've ever read that. He's in Rome under house arrest waiting for a trial in front of the emperor, And somehow, we don't know how. I mean, again, Paul knows Philemon, Onesimus' owner. Maybe he knew Onesimus as well. We don't know what happened. But somehow, these two come in contact. And Onesimus, whose name means beneficial or useful in the, the language that they're speaking in, he becomes a believer. And when he becomes a Christian, Paul sends him back. Because what he did was wrong. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to his master, Philemon. Now that's a gutsy thing to do. Technically, Philemon could try and have the kid executed. Now, he can't do it himself. Again, slaves have rights. He'd have to take him to court, charge him with these crimes, 
and then see if the court would execute him. Would they for a kid who came back? Who knows? The point is, he's probably got a three to six month journey from Rome back to Colossae. It's in the interior of modern day Turkey. Wow, I imagine those were long days wondering what's gonna happen. Now he does not go completely unarmed, however. The apostle Paul in prison in Rome is writing letters. We have some of them. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. They're all letters Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. There's no postal service, so he sends the letters with people. He sends the letter to the church of Colossae, the Colossians. He sends it with Onesimus and some other guys. Onesimus is Paul's letter carrier who brings what we have in our Bible today, the book of Colossians. He brings it to the church at Colossae and he brings a personal letter from the apostle Paul to his master Philemon. So read along with me, the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear fellow, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, you have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It's none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Calling this the forgiveness candle, if you remember, Advent is a time we prepare ourselves for Christmas. We we get ourselves ready to celebrate because you don't just wake up Christmas morning and be ready. It, It takes some time and each week we're looking at another aspect of our lives that I've challenged you to to think about and maybe take action on, on the issue of hope, on the issue of sacrifice and today on forgiveness because Christmas means family and family often means drama, doesn't it? 
You know, the song says it's the most wonderful time of the year. I think actually Dickens probably had it right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Family, when it comes to forgiveness, needing to forgive, family is often at the top of our list. And Christmas means family, getting together, reconnecting, remembering, remembering perhaps that you're not getting together because of things out there that aren't forgiven. There's also a great tradition. We don't do it here in the States, but it would serve us well if we did. In Asia, Chinese New Year, which takes place in normally sometime in February, is a week-long celebration because every night you go visit people. So you have to have nights where you're at home so people can come visit you. And then other nights you go out and visit people. And you visit your friends, you visit your family, you visit your work colleagues. And one of the things when you do at that visit is you ask for forgiveness. Now, it's formulaic, but you ask specifically, if I have done anything to harm you this year, if I have wronged you at all in the previous year, please forgive me. Because you want to settle your accounts before you go into the new year. That would serve us well to remember that. That that Christmas, a week after Christmas, will start the next year. Are there any accounts that have to be settled for you? Would it be good to settle anything before you go in to the new year? And this letter is all about forgiveness. Because Onesimus has wronged Philemon. He has harmed him. And Paul sends him back. What do we learn about forgiveness? There's two interesting things in this passage, I think. And the first shouldn't surprise any of us. And that's in verse eight. Although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Forgiveness is an obligation if you are a follower of Christ. And we don't find that out when we finally get to the book of Philemon. It's not like we start back in Matthew, read all the way through, come to Philemon and be like, oh my gosh, Christians are supposed to forgive people? I mean, it is all through the scriptures. You know the Lord's Prayer. There's six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus finishes giving it to us, he makes an editorial comment about just one of those, those propositions, one of those requests we make to God. He said, because one of the requests we make is, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And Jesus said, if you don't forgive other people when they sin against you, why in the world would you expect God to forgive you? He doesn't say that about daily bread. He doesn't say, you know, if you're not giving other people what they need, why should God give you what you need? He doesn't say that about any of the other things we ask God for, just about forgiveness. Some of his harshest parables are about people who won't forgive. Forgiveness is an obligation. If you are a follower of Christ, you have signed up for forgiveness because of course that is the essence of the faith. God has forgiven us. But the second thing I find so interesting in this story is that Paul never actually tells Philemon what to do. He never actually defines it. He has these vague things he says that you're not really sure. A friend of mine calls Philemon Paul's passive-aggressive forgiveness letter because he kind of seems to go, oh, you got to do this, but you know, here's what I want, but okay, all this back and forth. Look at what he tells. When he finally gets around to telling Philemon to do something in verse 17, if you consider me a partner, and, and I've told you in this language, whenever you say if something, you always have to specify whether you think it's true. And in both 17 and 18, when Paul says if, if this, 
he's saying, and you know it's true, right? That, that's in there, the way he writes it. If you consider me a partner, and I know you do, welcome him as you would welcome me. Okay, Paul, welcome him as if I would welcome you when you had stolen money from me and ran away? Or welcome him as if you just suddenly showed up and our relationship is okay because my relationship with him is not okay. He doesn't say. He just puts this vague assertion out there. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, and again, he says it in a way that communicates and we both know he has. Right? We both understand. That's one of the reasons we think these stories about him stealing something are true. Because Paul says, if he's harmed you in any way, and we know he has, then charge it to me. Now, is he, is he being literally serious? Let's say Philemon stole $1,000, right? Is Paul saying, I'll pay you $1,000? I'll pay it back. I know he owes it to you. He doesn't have the money. I'll pay it. It sounds like that in verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Like, this is a, ha- I mean, everything's handwritten in this world. You're reading along, there's probably this really nice script because Paul has a scribe that's writing this out for him. And then all of a sudden you're gonna get to the chicken scratch part because Paul is writing in his own hand, I will repay you. Right? It's a contract. He's putting it on paper. It's gonna get stamped and sealed. He's, he's telling Philemon, I will pay it back, whatever he owes you. It looks like he means this literally. And then he says, not to mention you owe me your very self, which sounds like he doesn't mean it literally at all. (laughs) He means it like, well, you're a Christian because of me, so you're going to live forever, and he owes you $1,000. How about we just call it even, okay? Like, which does he mean? He doesn't say it. He says in verse 20, refresh my heart in Christ. The only actually concrete thing he ever tells Philemon to do is in 22, prepare a guest room for me. It's the only thing where you're actually like, okay, got it. I know what that means. I know how to get a guest room ready. Paul can't tell Philemon exactly what it means to welcome Onesimus back, what it means to forgive him because you can't. You can't specify what forgiveness looks like for someone, there is this line between justice and forgiveness. And it's wavy, and it's dotted in some places, and it's murky. That This is why our faith centers around the cross. Because God doesn't, he can't just wave his hands and say, you're forgiven. I mean, he could, he's God. He could just say, okay, fine, you're all forgiven. But then he's not just. Then he's just letting whatever happens, happens. You know, that's like, I jump in my car, I back up into your car, and I'm like, oh, whoo, glad I'm forgiven, huh? And I drive away. And hey, your car's got a dent in it. Tough on you. God, it's not just gonna wave his hands and say, fine, John, fine, we'll just start over. Because then he wouldn't be just. Oh, but if he's just, you know what he has to do to us. You know how he has to treat people who have done to his perfect and good, pleasing world, what we have done to it. God is caught in this conundrum. And so the cross is his answer. He does both. He bears the cost of justice so he can be a God who offers forgiveness. But think about a Christian judge. You're a Christian and you're a judge. As a Christian, you are commanded to forgive. But as a judge, you're commanded in the Bible to do justice. 
Judges are commanded to punish the guilty. They are commanded to free the innocent. So which do you do? You're a Christian who has an obligation to forgiveness. You are a judge who has an obligation to justice. That's why being a judge is hard. For all of us, we face that. Whenever we are faced with forgiveness, there is this line that runs between justice and mercy, justice and forgiveness. And you can't tell someone, oh, this is what it looks like. Because think about our own salvation with Jesus. Jesus has taken care of our eternal consequences. They're done. We are are no longer separated from God. He has paid for that. But he hasn't paid for our temporal consequences. If I go rob a bank and the police catch me, even if they're Christians, they're not going to say, oh, I see here you're a Christian. Okay, you're forgiven. Go on. There will be consequences. If I go up to the tippy top of this roof and I jump off because, hey, I'm forgiven. What's the worst that could happen? Absolutely. Jesus forgives me all the way down. Gravity, not so much. Gravity does not have to forgive me. We looked at that when we studied the, book of, uh, of, of the beginning of the book of Proverbs, wisdom. Remember, it says that God will forgive you. Wisdom will mock you when you don't listen to her. When we are faced with forgiveness as followers of Christ, there is this difficult line. Paul cannot say to Philemon, here's what you must do. All he can say is, you have an obligation to do what's right. You have an obligation to forgive. But what does that look like? What do you think Paul wants him to do? Like reading between the lines, what does it sound like? It sounds like to me what Paul wants is that Philemon frees Onesimus and sends him back to Paul to to support Paul in his ministry because Paul's literally under house arrest in Rome. He cannot leave that room. He is dependent on people to take care of him and the government's not paying for him. If you can't pay to take care of yourself, then you go in the dungeon. Paul needs people to take care of him. He wants, I think he wants Onesimus to come back and be one of those people. That's why, you know, he says things like in, uh, in verse um, 10, I appeal to you for my son. In verse 11, he's useful to me. Verse 12, he's my very heart. Verse 13, I would have liked to have kept him. I think, reading between the lines, Paul wants Philemon to send Onesimus back to him to be there and to help Paul. But Paul can't require that. That's not forgiveness. The scriptures don't say when someone wrongs you, you must just get rid of all the temporal consequences. If I back into your car in the parking lot, the scriptures do not require you to say, oh, I'll pay for that, Jeff. I may need to pay for that. And yet, the scriptures require you to forgive me. Forgive me from your heart. We can't say to someone, this is what it looks like. If you forgive, you'll do this, you'll think this, you'll act this way. We can say there is an obligation to forgive, but it's hard. We all know that. It's hard to forgive when someone has wronged you. It's even hard to know where to start. What does it look like? Does it look like I just ignore this and pretend like it never happened? Maybe. Uh, Elizabeth and my family were, and uh, we were driving around, and we were missionaries, we were home on furlough, and we were visiting some friends from this church who'd moved to Tennessee, and we haven't seen them in four years, and we're not going to see them for another four years, we're only there for a weekend, so we stayed up way too late that night talking, and we got up the next morning, he's got to go to work, and we stayed way too late talking, and he's like, I got to go, I got to go, but what about this, right? Finally, at one point, he just jumps up, he's like, oh my gosh, I got to go, runs out, 
jumps in his car and backs up into my van, which is parked in his driveway. Boom! You, if you were here, if you saw my green van, I drove it the whole time I was here up until a year ago. Monstrous dent. The whole back door is dented in. Right? And I said, don't worry about it. Go to work. I'll take care of it. Forgiveness meant I will pay for this. I got a crowbar, bent it out so the latch worked. We drove around. I drove that van, you know, that whole time. I drove it again four years later. I drove it for the last eight years here. That's what forgiveness meant in that circumstance. But it wouldn't have been wrong for me to say, I'm gonna need your insurance information, buddy. (laughs) I I need that door. I gotta get it fixed. Like, I put luggage in and out of that door every single day on these trips. I had to, at one point, cut a hole on the inside of the door and put a piece of metal wrapped around the latch because the latch on the outside didn't work anymore. It would not have been wrong of me to say, dude, we gotta fix that door. For Philemon, what does forgiveness look like? For us, what does forgiveness look like? So let me give you some things to consider because I can't tell you this is what it is. This is what it means to forgive. You think this, you do this, you act this. Paul can't say that to Philemon. I mean, even when he wants something specific, I think. He can't command that. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures just say you have to forgive from your heart over and over and over again. Let me give you some things I see in this passage to help you as you think, as we come into Christmas, as maybe you've got issues with family where there needs to be forgiveness, maybe going into the new year, you need to settle some accounts. Here's some things I see in this passage, three things. The first one is that choosing to forgive is better than being obligated to forgive. Do you see what Paul says in verse eight and nine? I could order you but I so much rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Look what he says in 14. I want any favor you do not to be required, to be obligated, but to be voluntary. He says in 21, I'm confident you'll obey, but I want you to do more than that. I'm not just looking for for minimum obedience. I'm looking for more. Choosing is better than being obligated. So if you are facing some issue where you need to forgive, what's a choice you could make? I mean, I get it. It would be great if we could just say, yep, this is forgiveness. I know what this is. I'll do it. I'm done. But I don't find that to be true in my life. I doubt you find that to be true in your life. Forgiveness usually ends up being a process, which is probably why Jesus talks about it so much. And he tells us we're going to have to do it 70 times, seven times at least. Because oftentimes you got to get up every day and do it. What's one choice you could make. Yes, you are obligated to forgive. What's something you could choose to do? One thing you could choose to do to move towards forgiveness. So when I first became pastor here 10 years ago, um, I had a good friend who strongly encouraged me to take the job. And within the next year, I made a decision that that person did not like. And they thought, because we were friends, And because I kind of agreed with them personally about the issue, it just wasn't right for the church. They thought, of course, I would do what they wanted me to do. And when I didn't, our relationship completely fell apart. They said some things to me that I know they regretted later, but they ruptured that relationship. And it remains ruptured to this day. I mean, they they, they burned some bridges that we have not yet managed to rebuild. But boy, was I hurt because they encourage me to take this job and then they turn on me and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with this. 
And one of the things I felt, felt like God said to me was, choose to speak well of this person. Whenever they come up in conversation, because there were people who knew what had happened. I mean, it was in the open to some folks. Whenever this happens, you choose to speak good about them. You choose to say, yep, I wish that didn't happen, but I understand they feel really strongly about this issue. I understand they feel betrayed by me because they, they thought that because I agreed with them about the issue, I therefore necessarily would make the church do that. Like, I chose to spoke well, speak well. It was not easy. <laughs> it didn't solve everything, but it started the process. You know, scripture says, pray for your enemies. It doesn't say how often. It doesn't say what to pray. It, it just says to pray for your enemies. Maybe choose that. Maybe choose that every day you're going to pray one thing. I had another situation. I won't give you the details with somebody, but it's just like, okay, every day I'm gonna pray that God blesses this person. That's it. That's all I can do. That's the sum total of my prayer. Lord, bless so-and-so. But I'm gonna do that every single day when I pray. I'm gonna make that a habit. What can you choose? Because Paul seems pretty clearly to say here, wow, choice is so much better than obligation. You are obligated, don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't think I'm saying you're not obligated to forgive. But it's so much better if you choose. What's one thing you could choose in a situation you're in where you need to forgive? Just, just do that. Move forward with that into the new year. See what God does with that. That's the first thing I see in this passage. The second thing I see is that Paul tells Philemon that God has been at work for his good in this situation. Look at what he says in 15 and 16. Perhaps the reason he, that's Onesimus, was separated from you, which I think is a remarkably kind way of saying stole stuff from you and ran away, separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. What I expect Paul to say is, perhaps the reason he was separated you was from a little while so that he can become a Christian. What I expect Paul to say is, sure, Philemon, I get it, you lost. You lost whatever he stole. You lost his work, right? You lost, but look, he gained. The kingdom gained, isn't that great? You lost and God gained. Aren't you happy about that? Because no, who's happy about losing? Paul doesn't talk about Onesimus. What Onesimus, Onesimus gained life. He went from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. Paul doesn't say anything about that. It's like you, he was separated from you so that you could have him back. Not just as a slave, but as a brother. A brother, literally a brother in the flesh and a brother in the Lord. I think what Paul's telling a Philemon is, what he says before, remember his name means useful and Paul makes a pun on that earlier when he says, you know, I appeal to you about Onesimus, verse 11, formerly he was useless to you. Onesimus, beneficial, he was not beneficial. Now he is beneficial. He, when, when he was your servant, his name meant nothing. <laughs> he, he, I mean, seriously, you've got this late teenage, early 20-year-old kid who does not want to be there and does not want to, we don't know why he's a slave or how he ends up in those circumstances, but he doesn't want to be there and he splits. He wasn't any use, Paul says to you, but now he is. 
Because I think Paul's telling Philemon, look, you are, this kid didn't want to be anywhere near you previously. He was useless. But look at how he's changed. You, Philemon, you have gained from this. You have got, okay, yes, he went away from you and harmed you, but you've got him back in spades. I think Paul is reminding Philemon that you gained from this. Not just that Onesimus gained, which he did, or the kingdom gained, but Philemon, you gained. What if we thought that way about people hurting us? That all those things it says in the Bible, that God brings good out of everything. What if that's all true? What if he really does? What if he really takes the worst horrible, and I mean, you do not have to live long on this planet to see what horrible looks like. What if the Lord will take that and work good for it? Not in some weird, general, yes, something will prosper for you. God will take what has been done to you, the horrible, terrible sins that you have been sinned against, and somehow, because he is all-powerful and all-good, he will spin that around until Paul says to Philemon, look what you got back. Look at all the good. Yes, I know he left and that wasn't right. But look what God did. Look at the good the Lord has brought back to you. What if we remembered when we've been sinned against and we have to forgive that the Lord will bring good out. We don't gotta bring good out of it. We don't gotta make it happen. We don't gotta change anything. The Lord has sworn by himself. He will give you good out of this. I don't know if this will be in this life or the next. I can't tell you how he's gonna do it. I can just tell you he promises it over and over and over again. And when people say things to him like that's impossible, he laughs at them and says, do I look like I can't keep my promises? I put every star in the sky. Do you think I can't keep my promises? What if we thought that way when people have hurt us and we don't know what to do? And third, I think the first one is choice. Choosing is better than being obligated. We should remember all these good things that God will bring good to us. And thirdly, I think he encourages Philemon to remember that he's been forgiven and that it cost as well. I think that's what he's saying in verse 19 when he says, you know, not to mention you owe me your very self. I, I, I don't think that's a passive aggressive move. I think he's reminding Philemon that he's a Christian because someone came and preached to him. I mean, yes, we're, salvation's a free gift to us. God has freely saved us. It, we know it wasn't free to Jesus. He had to die. But it also cost Paul something for Philemon to be saved. He had to go there. He had to travel. He had to be there. He had to preach. It cost churches something to support Paul to do that. I think Paul's reminding Philemon, hey, the good you have from your salvation, other people paid for that. Other people paid so you could have this. You're just paying it forward. When you forgive, I think specifically he's saying, let, let Onesimus come back and help me do what I did for you with other people. When you do that, I think Paul's telling him, you're just paying it forward. Someone already did that for you. I know this is going to come to a shock as all of you, but I was not a nice guy in high school. The, uh, my uh, my uh, youth pastor, 
whose wife, Carolita, is still here and has, I've sworn her to secrecy on this. Um, my youth pastor, who became the second pastor of this church, a man to whom I owe a huge debt, once said to me in all seriousness, Jeff, I don't think abuse is a spiritual gift. I'm not laughing. I'm ashamed. I was an arrogant. uh, We are in a family situation. I will not use the appropriate words for the way I could act when I was in high school. But people invested in me anyway. People were kind to me anyway. People discipled me anyway. People came and saw what I was and worked with what they had. Barry Morrow was the second pastor of this church. I'm the sixth, but I'm only here because of stuff he did. Philemon is a believer because other people invested. It cost them their time. It cost them their money. Hey, don't be fooled. For some of them, it cost them their lives. And I think Paul's reminding him, hey, (laughs) you were saved at both the cost of the life of God himself, but also at the cost of all these other people. You're just paying it forward. Yep, he owes you. He ought to have to pay it back. Absolutely, you have every right to that if you want it. Why don't you let it go? Why don't you let it go and pay it forward? Let God use that to do good in someone else. God has sworn he'll do good for you already. You're gonna get repaid. Let God do good for other people as well. If you are facing issues this Christmas where you need to extend forgiveness, let me encourage you. Choose. Choose one thing you can do. Not not the whole way, just one thing that you can choose that you're going to do. And start doing it. Remind yourself continually that God will bring good out of this situation. He did for Philemon 2,000 years ago. He has all throughout time. You find those stories everywhere in the Bible. God will bring good to you from this situation. I don't know when and I don't know how, but he has sworn it. He has never broken a promise. And, you know, maybe pay it forward. Maybe remember what it costs for you to be here. What it costs others for you to be here and pay it forward to all the people. They're not here now, but they could be later. Maybe next week, maybe next year. Who knows? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. I mean, we're only standing here because you forgave us. That's the only reason I stand up here. That's the only reason anybody sits here in this congregation because of what you have done to forgive us. And it was not free to you, and I know full well it was not free to a bunch of other people. Thank you. That's really kind of you. Lord, give us courage. Uh, Give us courage to forgive. Give us courage to choose to do the right thing. Just like Paul says, I could command you to, but I don't want to command you. I want to appeal to you on the basis of love. I don't want you to do what is good and right because you have to. I want it to be voluntary. I want you to do it because because you can, because you get to, because you want to. Jesus, work that into us. Make us people who live like that and think like that, that that we are not captured by the sins of our past because we know that 
you will take care of it. You will bring good back to us. You have already brought good to us from others. Lord, make us people like that. Remind us. As we move into Christmas, for some of us, as the family drama dramatically increases, for some of us, we just need to settle some accounts before we go into the new year. Lord, be at work in us. Remind us. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. Only you, Holy Spirit, can tell us what forgiveness needs to look like in each of these cases. Because only you know. Even the Apostle Paul wasn't sure, it seems. Holy Spirit, speak to us. These places where we need to forgive, speak to us. Show us the choices we need to make and give us the courage and the encouragement to make them. Because we want to be like you, Jesus. Wow, if you wanted to hold a grudge, (laughs) you have abundant reasons. But you don't. Scripture says you consider dying for us a joy. A joy set before you. So you, you, you endured the cross. You scorned its shame. Thank you. We want to be people who act just a little bit like you. As we celebrate your birth, make us look more like you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Always. Amen.